From the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, we welcome you to the Disaster Discussions Podcast, where we explore the intersection of severe weather and the built environment. I'm your host, Armand Brody. Thank you so much for being with us, folks. You know how to get a hold of us on Amazon, Apple, Google, and Spotify. I want to thank you for your response to our most recent episode, a conversation about dollars and disasters with Dr. Kevin Simmons, who goes some decades back with IBHS, had a great conversation with him. Make sure you check that out if you've not done so already. And we're still buzzing around here about the episode we recorded for the June uh, edition of our podcast with Dr. Ian Jamanko, who is our lead research meteorologist here at IBHS, and Sarah Dillingham, our senior meteorologist. We had a little IBHS powwow. We called it On the Radar. We talked about all the craziness that we saw in the first half of the year. So if you've not had an opportunity to check out either of those episodes, please make sure you do so. Subscribe to the podcast, and of course, you can go to IBHS.org slash Disaster Discussions Podcast. We want to make sure you don't miss a thing. Well, we are in the middle of the 2023 Atlantic hurricane season, and our guest today is Dr. Phil Klotzbach, who is a senior research scientist with the Department of Atmospheric Science at Colorado State University. Phil joins us to discuss the importance of seasonal forecasting and to talk about what different industries, including the insurance industry, can draw from it. Phil, it's a pleasure to have you with us on the Disaster Discussions podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Armand. Looking forward to chatting today. Indeed, indeed. And you're joining us on some short notice, so we are particularly grateful for that. We're also aware of the fact that you are a bit of an outdoorsman, so you've got a lot of hiking and things going on. And we certainly want to give you an opportunity to get back to those things as well, but we cannot stress how pleased and excited we are to have you with us today. Well, thanks again for having me. You got it. Let's, ju- let's jump right into it here. Uh, Phil, if you would give us some background of seasonal forecasting overall, and at Colorado State in particular, and of course you can't mention uh, those words without talking about the legendary Bill Gray. Yeah, that's correct. So our our group at Colorado State University has been doing seasonal forecasting all the way since 1984. So this is the 40th year of doing seasonal hurricane predictions. Uh, You look at me and you're probably like, hey, this guy probably wasn't involved in 1984. And that's correct. I was not. Uh, But it was founded by Dr. Bill Gray, who was basically a fundamental, um, I mean, tremendous contributions in all sorts of areas of in tropical meteorology. So he's kind of best known kind of in the general public for seasonal hurricane predictions, but he also made just amazing contributions to tropical cyclone genesis, structure, intensity change. And also he was a very strong advocate for strong building codes and basically building resilient communities. Um, But kind of the way these seasonal forecasts got started was Bill Gray was basically a fount of knowledge. And so, you know, prior to the Internet, um, Dr. Gray was kind of like Wikipedia or back in the day, Encyclopedia Britannica uh, before they had it. So he knew which years in the past were busy hurricane seasons and he knew which years in the past had El Nino conditions, El Nino being warmer than normal water in the eastern and central tropical Pacific Ocean. And he noted when you had El Nino conditions in the tropical Pacific Ocean, you tend to not get as many Atlantic hurricanes. And that intrigued him. And he was really kind of an empiricist by trade, so he would kind of find these relationships and then really dive into the physics as to why something going on in the Pacific Ocean would impact hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean thousands of miles away, And through research that he and others did, he found it was through basically changes in vertical wind shear, which are basically the uh, changes in wind speed and direction with height in the atmosphere. 
Too much shear is detrimental for hurricanes, tends to tear them apart, disrupts the circulation. So vertical wind shear in general is our friend. We want to see lots of vertical shear because that tends to mean fewer overall Atlantic hurricanes. So we use that historical relationship and a lot of others to pioneer these seasonal forecasts. Um, and we've been doing this um, at CSU since 1984. Dr. Gray unfortunately passed away in 2016. Uh, we continue to, uh, to issue these forecasts and hopefully we'll have another 40 years of these forecasts uh, in the future as well. Phil, I want to get some clarity from you here because I want to make sure our audience is aware of the work that you do and how it is different from a broadcast meteorologist on our local news or uh, somebody who talks about the weather, even in an IBHS context. Explain the differences, if you would. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, we focus, our focus at Colorado State is primarily not as much on day-to-day -day weather. Obviously, we do follow hurricanes extremely closely. I'm very obsessed with day-to-day -day weather as well. I think anyone who's a meteorologist is. But we tend to focus on longer-term timescales. So kind of what we've done at CSU for a long time are these seasonal predictions. So basically trying to predict prior to the peak of the season how busy the season is going to be. And when we also do two-week forecasts during the peak months of the season. And the reason that we do those is because, you know, you have a hurricane season, but then you also... Uh, can dive in and look and see, okay, how about the next two weeks? How busy do those look? And, you know, if you could have a very busy season that has a quieter period, and alternatively, you can have a fairly quiet season that has a really, really busy period. So there's climate factors such as El Nino, which you've already talked about, that will drive seasonal activity, but there's also other climate factors that drive sub-seasonal variability. And so again, we focus on the next two week time horizon uh, once we start to move into the peak months of the season, which typically are August through October. I saw in a video released about six days ago on the day we're taping this, uh, that your research group at Colorado State is now expecting an above average season. What pieces need to play out for you before you and your group can confidently share that information broadly? Yeah, so our group at CSU issues four seasonal forecasts per year. We do our first one in early April, then we update it right around the 1st of June. We do another update in early July and a final update in early August. And you might be saying, well, what are you doing doing a seasonal forecast in August? You're already two months into the season. Um, but, you know, while some people argue, well, that's like doing a forecast for the who's going to win the Super Bowl at halftime, it's more like saying who's going to win the Super Bowl after the opening drive of the game. Um, Basically, over 95% of your major hurricanes, your Category 3, 4, and 5 hurricanes, occur after the 1st of August. So we do these four update, or the we do initial forecasts in April, and then we update it three additional times in early June, July, and August. And, you know, there's a lot of different factors that we look at when we put together these seasonal forecasts, but... Um, it was our early April forecast. We actually were forecasting a little bit below normal season, and now we're forecasting above normal activity. And we do expect El Nino, which was we just talked about, tends to increase your shear and knock down your storms. But also right now, most of the Atlantic is record warm. Um, and so when you have that record warm Atlantic, that tends to alter the atmospheric circulation such that we probably won't see as much shear as we typically expect in an El Nino event. And also, hurricanes live off of warm ocean water. So when you have a lot more of that warm ocean water, it provides more fuel for storms. We already saw that in June where we had two tropical storms, Brett and Cindy, form in the tropical Atlantic. That's extremely rare. We've actually 
we've never observed more than one forming um, kind of east of the islands in the tropics during June before. And so to get two was, was quite unusual. And that was likely primarily due to the fact that the waters were much warmer than they normally are during the month of June. Yeah, you were talking about El Nino and uh, the, the atmosphere being uh, warmer. And it's exactly what Sarah was mentioning during our podcast uh, episode back in June. Um, I want to talk about this because you kind of touched on it. You were driving up the street. Uh, but I figure since we're there, let's go on down the, uh, down the avenue. Let's discuss climate change and any climate change-related impacts, Phil, that you've seen in forecasting. Yeah, so there's... There's a lot of kind of, so I mean, obviously we could spend hours talking about this one topic, climate change and hurricanes. Um, and so, you know, if we're talking about, say, on a long-term time scale, you know, one of the big questions that people want to know is, are storms going to get, quote unquote, worse with climate change? Um, and, you know, a lot of it depends on how you define the word worse. We already are observing more damage from storms. Even the storms that make landfall today don't change at all. You're seeing more damage just due to increased ex increases in exposure, basically more population, more stuff along the coast. Um, that's why be better building codes is so important. If we're going to put more people effectively in harm's way, we need to have resilient structures such that when these storms do come along, they don't just cause the absolute devastation that they can, say, in some of these older constructions, which aren't as well built. Um, but we also know with climate change that you're um, basically when you warm the in climate change, you warm the ocean surface and you also warm throughout the atmosphere and a warm atmosphere um, can basically produce more rainfall since a warmer atmosphere can hold more water vapor. So obviously more rainfall isn't great uh, because that tends to increase obviously the flooding risk. Another thing that we know is that when you warm the atmosphere and especially when you warm the ocean, you have sea level rise. Um, and so sea level rise, you know, a couple inches six inches, even a foot, doesn't seem like much to me living out in Colorado, but obviously if you're a low lying, if you're living in a low lying area and you have the sea level rising, that when that hurricane comes along and you get that storm surge coming on shore, it will penetrate farther inland. And we know it doesn't take three, four, six feet of salt water in a house to cause it to be condemned. Even six inches or a foot can be um, either a tremendous cost or potentially even a total loss. So we know those factors. Obviously, the thing that everyone wants to know is, you know, are, are we going to see stronger hurricanes? And I think the answer is we likely are to see hurricanes become a little bit stronger. Um, not maybe as strong as people necessarily think it will be, because when you warm the ocean surface, that provides more fuel for storms. But you also warm throughout the atmosphere and you warm more higher up in the atmosphere. And that increased warming that you get high up in the atmosphere tends to stabilize the atmosphere a bit and take a bit of the edge off. However, uh, we do think the warming oceans are going to, to win out a bit. The question also has been asking, are we going to see more storms? And that's really unclear. A lot of the models actually project, and we actually have even observed a somewhat of a decreasing trend in the overall number of storms globally. Not necessarily in the Atlantic, but if you look at storms elsewhere in the Pacific Ocean, um, where they're called hurricanes in the Eastern Pacific, typhoons in the Western Pacific, and tropical cyclones in some of these other basins in the Indian Ocean and in the Southern Hemisphere. So there's a ton of stuff there. I would say, you know, we're likely to see more damage in the future just due to increases in population and wealth, um, as well as sea level rise, increased precipitation, and then potentially also stronger storms. You mentioned tropical cyclones a bit there, and I'm just curious. Um... That got me to thinking about something else. What what can these forecasts tell us, and what what can't they tell us? Yeah, no, that's where. At what point do we say, based on the knowledge, 
Yeah, go ahead. No, that's a great question. And so, you know, I think honestly, some people put more stock in seasonal forecasts than I do. And I've been doing this for over 20 years. Um, you know, seasonal forecasts, we can give you some idea as to basically like how busy the overall season is going to be. We have skill at that. We've been doing this 40 years. Um, and there's other groups as well that do these seasonal forecasts. And generally we do show skill at being able to predict how busy this season is going to be. But we can't say exactly where the storms are going to go. That's governed a lot more by day-to-day -day weather patterns, which you just don't have the ability to be able to predict months into the future. So, you know, when it comes to hurricane seasons in general, busier hurricane seasons overall have more landfalling hurricanes. So the odds do go up that landfalls are going to occur if you have a very busy season. But there are certainly exceptions. Uh, for example, one of the years that we like to give as an example is 1992, which was overall a pretty quiet season. Dr. Gray and his team at CSU that year put out a great forecast of only one major hurricane. We only had one major hurricane, but it was Hurricane Andrew, which obviously devastated South Florida. Um, and you can get extremely lucky like 2010. We had 12 hurricanes in the Atlantic Basin and not one hit the U.S., on average, about one in every four hurricanes it forms hits the U.S. So you can run a really good streak of luck or a bad streak of luck. But in general, if you think historically at busy seasons like 2004, 2005, 2017, 2020, these seasons tend to have high impact hurricanes just because if you're throwing enough darts at a board, eventually something's probably going to stick somewhere. And obviously, you know, being at Colorado State, you know, we tend to focus a lot on what happens in the continental U.S., but obviously, too, we do get very significant landfalls, um, obviously, Caribbean, Central America, um, all the way up, even up into Canada, I mean, in all these areas as well, in busier seasons are also more likely to be impacted by storms. But I just want you to drive this point home so people understand, because I'm sure you've gotten it over the course <laughs> of your career, and you, you, you might be getting these kinds of questions still. When people come up to you and say, hey, Phil, Where's the hurricane going to hit in July or August or early September? People want to make sure they understand that it's not quite that black and white. Yeah, right? yeah. We're just, I mean, the answer is you're, we're just not that good. And I don't think we ever will be that good. I mean, so I think basically you have different time horizons. So on a seasonal time scale, we can say, okay, here's how busy we think the overall season is going to be. And here are a few kind of uh, potentially maybe regions that look more or less likely. For example, given this year has El Nino conditions, even though overall we're forecasting an above normal season, given kind of what the models are projecting, probably the Caribbean is less likely than normal to be impacted just given overall um, the atmospheric circulation in an El Nino year. But when you start getting down and say to the two week forecast that we do, then we can say, obviously, if there's storms out there, we can talk about what they might do. But also, once you get to within a week or two, you can say, hey, you know, for example, the next two weeks, the models really aren't showing really anything developing in the Gulf of Mexico, but maybe something will form off the Atlantic or off the coast of Africa or, or the, alternatively the other way or, OK, the Gulf of Mexico, maybe in the next two weeks. But then. Obviously, one storm is formed, the National Hurricane Center puts out advisories every six hours, and they say, you know, hey, based on all the models that we have, here's the more or less likely solutions as to where these storms will go. So kind of like, I kind of think of it as the same as like a hierarchy of like, you know, your 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 weather for your daily weather forecast. So if you're looking, say, in like September, October, Climate Prediction Center will put out a forecast and say, hey, this winter looks cold. Okay, their forecast might be perfect, but during that cold winter, you may have, you know, two weeks where it's warmer than normal. Um, and so as you move closer, you can say, okay, the next two weeks look warm or cold, and you can have more confidence as you get closer to the event you're trying to predict. And that's similarly how we do things with the uh, seasonal prediction. There's kind of, a, kind of a hierarchy of forecasts that you see, and obviously 
even a day or two out before a hurricane makes landfall, there are subtle changes that can make big differences and impacts. Obviously, your work is focused rather uh, intensely on hurricanes, but I'm, I am curious, Phil, um, how does your work relate to other perils, wildfire? You know, we, we study wind-driven rain and hail and wildfire here at IVHS, but uh, I'm curious, uh, how does the work you do, how does it relate to wildfires or severe convective storms? Yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of tie. So, obviously, hurricanes, when they make landfall, can produce tornadoes. So you can get, usually they're not super strong tornadoes, but they can produce tornadoes, which can cause additional damage. Um you know, hurricanes, while in general we think of hurricanes as being quote-unquote bad, they also do produce tremendous amounts of rain. So they can reduce, eliminate drought, um, and also obviously in, the, in that case reduce wildfire risk. But a lot of the same climate patterns, say, that we look at for hurricanes also do impact things like severe convective storms. Things like El Nino is a big driver of severe convective storm, kind of where those, where those severe convective storms are more or less likely to occur. Um, and also El Nino tends to produce, for example, in an El Nino year, you tend to get more rain in places like California and Texas and Florida. So that tends to reduce your wildfire risk. Whereas if you have La Nino, which is effectively the opposite of El Nino, that tends to mean, not didn't happen really last year, but generally means drier in places like California, potentially increasing the risk of wildfires the following summer. So one of the things that we've actually observed um, in recent years, this year notwithstanding, is a trend more towards La Nina. Um, overall over say the last 30 years and that is probably one of the reasons why we've seen more significant wildfires say in places like California is because when you have La Nina that tends to cause drought in the southwest United States so if that obviously this year we're talking about the opposite we're talking about El Nino but overall the long-term trend if we do trend more towards La Nina potentially that could mean increased wildfire risk in the southwest U.S. which is obviously a big concern given that there's a large population demographic shift moving towards the southwest United States as well. So we're maybe put, potentially putting even more people into an area where water is obviously critical, as it is where I could live in Colorado as well. It's, like, it's a critical resource, although Colorado in May and June, we had a tremendous amount of rain. Um, so right now, Colorado aquifers are doing quite well. You know, it would not be the Disaster Discussions podcast if I didn't uh, broach this topic. You mentioned the moment or so ago building codes, and I've got to ask about resilient construction. And I know it's not your direct lane, but uh, it wouldn't be the podcast if I didn't ask about it. From your vantage point, tell me, Phil, about the importance of resilient construction and perhaps even conversations or anecdotes that you can share with us relative to it. Yeah, I mean, so my mom lives a mile away from from the ocean uh, in Cape Canaveral, Florida, and she has she lives on the third floor of a condo complex and they have really good shutters, uh, which storm shutters. And so, you know, they've had, they have, thankfully haven't experienced like the, the worst of any hurricanes, but they've experienced since she moved down there, she's experienced Matthew, Irma, um, even Ian and, uh, Nicole last year. And, you know, things have held up really, really well. Um, so, you know, there's a few things that obviously one of the big things is, being elevated above the storm surge is critical. Um, and then also just having well-built construction. And we saw that even in the case of Hurricane Ian, that the newer construction that was out of the surge zone performed really, really well. Um, and so I think that's, that's really encouraging because that's what we want, right? I mean, we want, you know, these hurricanes are going to happen regardless, you know, even if they climate change and change hurricanes at all, we, 
If you look back historically, Florida has had, especially has had some really nasty periods for hurricanes from like 1920s to the 50s. So we've seen these really nasty periods in the past. And so we just need to be prepared um, for these events. And really one of the best ways is, you know, just so, you know, instead of having to evacuate in a hurricane, you can just ride it out because you have a well-built, a well-built structure. I know obviously the work that, that you and others do is, is fantastic because you can kind of, you, you beat the snarf out of stuff and test it and say what works, what doesn't. Um, cause you know, growing up in Massachusetts, we had a couple of hurricanes, but even like these really powerful nor'easters, it's amazing how, when you get say 50, 60, 70 mile an hour winds, how those, it'll find the really, the, any weak point that you have, you'll see water and you're like, I had no idea there was an issue there, but there's a slight, you know, crack in the cock in the window or something. And so like, it'll find it in these storms. And obviously with the hurricane, you know, depending on the speed of the storm, you could have hurricane force winds, especially wind gusts for several hours. And so, you know, you got the key is making sure that even your weakest link is strong enough to be able to hold up to these, um, to these storms, whether it be, you know, hurricanes or severe, severe convective storms, hail, things like that, especially in Colorado, hail is a huge problem. Um, Thankfully, we don't get hurricanes in Colorado. Um, right along the Front Range, we do get tornadoes, but typically the stronger ones are farther to the east. But we get a lot of hail, and so you know, it's it's really important to have roofs that can hold up to it um, because you know, obviously, hail can just batter batter the batter the tiles and everything else. So you know, basically trying to get stuff as resilient as possible, such that we don't have to be replacing roofs every year in Colorado. Because let me tell you, roofers in Colorado do a great business. <laughs> I've gotten uh, in the almost three years that I've been here, I've gained such an appreciation being around these brilliant folks around here. I've gotten such an appreciation for the damage that hail can do uh, to roofs and to homes. And uh, uh, however, uh, whatever stages of life I'll find myself in buying different homes in different seasons of my life, I won't be able to get away from the knowledge of the impact that hail can bring and the damage that hell can do. So everything you're saying, it definitely resonates from uh, this IBHS employee over here. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the key things, too, is like a lot of times we think that anything that we do is going to be super expensive. And obviously there's kind of hierarchy of things that we can do to make our homes more resilient. I mean, obviously you can you can spend, you know, $100,000 and do all sorts of crazy stuff, but there's stuff you can do for 50, 100,000 bucks. I mean, we see things like roof tie downs and, you know, even with these building codes, building codes are fantastic, but the enforcement of the building codes is, is also really critical. Um, and again, you know, the building code is basically like, it's, it's good, but that's like the bare minimum. Um, so, you know, even building stronger than the codes is, is, is great. And we, we've seen though, we've seen houses survive, you know, in really nasty situations and, and remarkably, even in her, in the Bahamas with hurricane Dorian, which was in my view, probably the worst case storm that you could possibly come up with where a category five stalls, but doesn't weaken because it's mostly over water, except for these really small islands. Several, there were houses that survived hours upon hours of category five sustained winds. And that's just blows me away. It literally blows me away that anything could survive that. But that just goes to show you like if stuff is well built and well engineered, that it can survive pretty much almost anything that, that, that nature can throw its way. So what's the biggest misconception or myth or the, the thing that people get wrong about the work that you do and how do you communicate the proper perspective regarding it yeah so i think there's there's a couple of things i've had people say that you know seasonal hurricane forecast 
change insurance rates. And there's absolutely no truth to that because there's like 20 different groups issuing seasonal forecasts. And some, some will say like this year, there's a huge spread. Some are saying really busy. Some are saying quiet and you're not seeing insurance rates going up or down. Um, insurance rates are based on um, historical data and these catastrophe models, which are built a lot more on historical rates of landfalls and the current building codes and other costs that go into these things. So like seasonal forecasts, I think are interesting, but they're certainly not changing insurance rates. Um, another thing I think people think too is we always stress that it's an informational tool. Like obviously I'm really curious how busy the season is going to be. Um, and a lot of other people are as well, but it's not a preparedness tool. We stress that, you know, you need to be prepared the same every hurricane season, regardless of the impacts. And hurricane preparation is sadly somewhat related to how frequent, when the last time you were impacted by a hurricane. Obviously, in 2017, at the start of 2017, we had gone 11 years, um, or we went 10 years from 2006 to 2015 with no hurricane or no hurricanes hitting Florida, for example. So we were talking about hurricane amnesia and trying to get people, you know, prepared for hurricanes. And then obviously we had, especially 2017, 20, you know, all these seasons in a row to 18, 19, 20, 20, like just over and over and over again. So right now, say for example, you know, people in Fort Myers, obviously I've been unfortunately well too familiar with hurricanes. So, you know, getting people prepared down there is very different than say a place that hasn't been hit. But, you know, we always stress that you need to prepare the same every season because, you know, hurricanes, one of the things with hurricanes, people think, oh, we're due or, or we're not due. And that's not the way hurricanes are. You can go, you know, 30 years without getting hit by a hurricane, they get two in the same year. And alternatively, you can run a great streak of luck and not have impacts for a really long time. So, you know, unfortunately, Fort Myers, you know, you're not less due this year than, say, last year. And alternatively, if you haven't been hit, doesn't necessarily mean that this is your year either. So it's important to realize that, you know, be prepared the same every year and that um, the odds don't change if you've been hit, say, the prior year. It doesn't increase or decrease your odds. Right. Hurricanes don't have personalities. You can't talk them into or out of something. Exactly. Yes. Very good point. And it goes right in line with what we talk all. Yeah, it goes all the time. It goes into what we talk about all the time here at IVHS about being hurricane ready. So everything you're saying, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, amen, sir. Amen. I want to ask you this. Um, how do you mentioned insurance rates? How do various industries, including the insurance industry, how do they rely on your forecasting and the data and the research that comes out of Colorado State? So what we do a lot of is, so we do obviously these seasonal predictions, and then we also look at some of these, you know, longer term risks as well. So we'll look at things like, you know, how about, okay, we know here we can talk about the 2023 season, but what about the longer term risks? What are the risks in a normal El Nino year or La Nina year? How does climate change impact storms? Um, we also are a very strong advocate for, uh, right now we categorize hurricanes by wind, um, but we're a very strong advocate of categorizing, instead of using wind, categorizing hurricanes by pressure, because um, max wind gives you the max wind, but pressure gives you not only the strength of the storm, it also gives you an idea of the size of the storm. Um, which is obviously very critical because a larger storm is going to have a larger area that's impacted by wind, impacted by rain, and also larger storms, all else being equal, have more storm surge associated with them. And obviously, in a lot of these storms, say, for example, Hurricane Ian last year, surge can be the biggest driver of the damage and, unfortunately, the fatalities as well. So what we're trying to do is kind of document how 
pressure actually works better at categorizing hurricanes. And so that kind of stuff, I think the insurance industry does find interesting because obviously when they're, you know, judging risk and pricing policies and stuff, they want to kind of know like what is the best metrics that basically will correlate best with the damage. And the best thing about pressure is it's just much easier to measure than wind. Uh, trying to measure the strongest winds in a hurricane is extremely difficult, whereas pressure, you don't even have to have a barometer outside to be able to accurately measure the pressure in a storm. So I think there's a lot of benefits to using that. So that's kind of some of the stuff that we do in addition to the seasonal forecast. You know, I, I spend a fair amount of time working on that, but there are a lot of other kind of research topics that we look at as well. So let's look to the future a bit. Um... What role could AI or machine learning play in seasonal forecasting going forward? Yeah, so there's a lot of them. Um, so one of the challenges with seasonal forecasting is AI is great when you have a ton of data. Um, so if, if I had you know 100,000 years of, her, of historical data, AI would be fantastic for it. But unfortunately, we only can go back so far with reliable data. Um, and so the further back you go, the hurricane data becomes more questionable and also the wind patterns, the pressure patterns, the water temperature patterns, the things that we use to forecast also become um, more questionable. So there is there are groups that are using kind of machine learning techniques to do seasonal forecasting. But I think, for example, in the Atlantic Basin, where we've done where we meaning our group, but a ton of other groups as well, have done all this research. There's probably not a lot that we're, quote unquote, missing that we haven't looked at yet for predictability. But um there, I think, are good avenues for areas where maybe they, there's other basins that get tropical cyclones or hurricanes that haven't been as well looked at. I think where that could be very useful. Um, also, um, there's a lot of this kind of AI machine learning is also starting to go into some of these dynamical models. Um, and dynamical models are, in addition to using kind of historical data, we also use climate models and look and see what they're forecasting for the season. Um, and so likely with time, those will become more and more, um, at least somewhat machine learning, learning based that can kind of help kind of cut off some of the time lag that it takes to, to crunch some of these numbers. Um, the dynamic, statistical, so we use our what's called statistical dynamical models, which basically means we'll take a climate model forecast. So we'll say, okay, to say, for example, July 1st, what are the models saying, not for the number of hurricanes, but what are the models saying for things like wind shear and pressure patterns? Um, and then, okay, if that model's right, how will that then relate to the hurricane season? So we're using some of that technology as well. So I think there's a lot of avenues that will, that this will, that this will help with over time. Um, but if we're doing just based purely on historical data, there's probably not enough years of data to make machine learning super helpful for a seasonal forecast. If you're talking day-to-day -day weather or a weekly forecast, where obviously you have a lot larger sample sizes, the more data you have, the better the machine learning or the more useful machine learning becomes because it can obviously crunch a lot more numbers. And basically, instead of like me flipping through maps, basically it can basically be me flipping through maps. But instead of flipping through one map every 10 seconds, it's, it's flipping, you know, through 1,000 maps every second or something like that and picking out patterns. So I think there is certainly use for it coming down the pike. And there's a lot of a lot of effort and time being put into trying to kind of have, basically figure out how to best optimize uh, machine learning. And one of the big challenges is, one of the big criticisms of machine learning often is, oh, it's a black box. We don't really know how we got, we, it, gave, it gave me an answer, but I don't know how, but there's some cool new techniques that can kind of tell us, here's the answer and then here's why. And that's obviously a scientist. That's what we want to know is obviously we always want to know, you know, 
great, I want to get the answer, but I also want to know why you gave me that answer. And so that's something, you know, as hopefully a scientist and its engineers are always asking those questions, right? You know, okay, this worked, but why? And so that's kind of, I think one of the exciting things about machine learning now is some of these explainable techniques that will kind of will allow us to be able to not only get the answer, but know why that answer came. And that leads to hopefully improvements in physical understanding as well. Phil, I'll get you out of here with this one. Um, what should our audience take away from your work and from our conversation uh, here today? What should we know? What should we do? Yeah, and so I think, you know, fr from a seasonal forecast perspective, we always stress that it's an informational tool, not a preparedness tool. So regardless of our forecast, NOAA's forecast, any of the other groups that are doing seasonal prediction, you know, you need to be prepared the same for every hurricane season. Um you know, I, I think one of the things that's interesting about what what we do is, you know, we're kind of looking at it, things from a, a little bit more of a high level, like how busy is the season going to be? But then, you know, when there's storms out there, you look and you see how what these storms do. And then, you know, obviously you can have, again, you can have a season like last year, which was, you know, quote unquote, a normal season, but obviously had extremely outsized impacts, obviously with Ian in Southwest Florida, but then also with, with Fiona and Puerto Rico and then up into the Atlantic provinces of Canada. So, you know, we do these things because obviously there's a lot of scientific curiosity and there's skill in doing these, but then obviously, you know, you see kind of how these seasonal forecasts can transition into obviously, obviously huge impacts. And so I think, you know, every storm is different, kind of like every snowflake is different and you learn, you learn a lot by each season and you learn a lot from each storm too. You know, each storm teaches us something and obviously, you know, what you do is fantastic because you basically test all these different building construction practices and everything. And then obviously, so hope, that basically means when they actually are put to the real test, when the hurricane actually comes on shore, that they actually hold up just as well as, 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 as what was shown in, in, in your, in your labs. He is Dr. Phil Klotzbach. Brilliant senior research scientist with the Department of Atmospheric Science at Colorado State University. Phil, I want to thank you for joining us on the Disaster Discussions podcast, and I want you to enjoy your next hiking adventure, sir. <laughs> Thanks so much. Take care. Have a good weekend. Thanks for listening to the Disaster Discussions podcast, an IBHS production. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or watch the podcast on our website at ibhs.org slash disaster discussions podcast and the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety YouTube channel. Connect with us on our social media pages on Twitter at ibhs underscore org, Facebook at facebook.com slash ibhs org, and on Instagram at ibhs underscore org. For more great content from IBHS, including ongoing research efforts happening at our facility, episodes of our podcast, and more, visit ibhs.org.